Now, that is an amazing song entitled Next Plane to London by the Rose Garden. I owe this uh, song uh, and its reminder to me, a song that is buried very securely, anchored river deep and mountain high in my own life already, but recently it came back thanks to the wonderful Ray Ortland, who is the DJ of the century who masquerades in daily life as a marvelous uh, minister of the gospel. Now, this uh, podcast, which is 151, the adhesion to which next plane to London will be pasted on shortly, is actually a kind of backstory plug for a new project that I've recently finished and that I hope, dear listener, that you may enjoy. I've written a book entitled PZ's Panopticon, colon, An Off-the-Wall Guide to World Religion. The book is finished, is in the editing stages, and should be published by Mockingbird, God willing, in early 2014. And it is a guide to the organized religions of the world, West and East, as well as to dead religions, such as the Aztec, the ancient Egyptian, and the Greco-Roman, as well as religions that are not usually called religions, such as fame, sex, money or things, children, family, ideology, and power, and with a strong final attempt to synthesize it all over the great question of, is there a God, and um, is there life after death? This delightfully, um, that is to say the experience of writing it has been delightful and fun, is a kind of view or bird's eye view of the different religions I've mentioned, from the standpoint of a dying person, specifically the standpoint from, of a, of a near-dead human being who, as you've heard often the story, is being operated on or uh, attempted to be resuscitated down below on an operating table or in a hospital bed <clears throat> or perhaps just at home struggling for breath in the middle of her sleep and 
as we often hear from individuals who've been in this situation, the um, the person feels like they've risen out of their body and have detached from it and are sort of on the ceiling, you might say, 10 feet above them, looking down on the action. And this gives people an enormously uh, valuable uh, perspective, you might say, a panopticon, which I will explain in the book easily and I hope with humor, a view of life which allows them to sort of see things viscerally and primally and in a very big way instantly by virtue of the detaching from the body, which occurs. Now, uh, you may say, well, is there any experience and proof? Well, I've had it happen to me, albeit not in quite the same way. The whole podcast uh, uh, um, experience that I've uh, laid out over the last few years is an attempt to come to terms with a with a collapse of the person known as Paul Zoll, uh, a complete implosion which occurred in January of 2007, from which I've been trying to understand life God, myself, religion, truth, hope, <laughs> the future, everything, uh, and the past, uh, in light of in a complete implosion of the person that had that name. And I've also known really up close people who had near-death experiences. I mean, really up close. And I've followed them, and I've been with them uh, just after they had it, and in the immediate aftermath of uh, near-death experiences. And it's happened uh, with people I know really well. In ministry, uh, needless to say, and then when I had it myself, albeit psychically, but it had the same effect, a kind of gravitating or non-gravitating effect, like a, like a balloon, you know, uh, the red balloon in Paris floating away, looking down and seeing things, the God's eye view of Hitchcock. This um, made me uh, take as a kind of conceit uh, my own experience, but relevant to the near-death experiences I've been close to in the past, and I uh, thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to see what does the different religion, what, what, what do each religion have to say? What does Islam have to say? It has a lot to say, but what does it say to a person who has about uh, two minutes to go before departure, unless they're resuscitated and brought back, which has happened? What does it have to say to simply a dying person who's received, a, uh, you know, the... Um, the diagnosis of pancreatic acute uh, advanced uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. What do, what do the religion? What does Islam have to say? What does Judaism have to say? What does Christianity have to say? What does uh, Hinduism, Vedanta Hinduism, and its sort of Western variant? What does uh, Buddhism, in its uh, Western variant especially, have to say? What about the dead religions, so-called, of, quote, lost civilizations? Uh, what do these uh, religions, well, why did they become popular and why did they die? What do they have to say, if anything? Uh, this is slightly tongue-in-cheek, and we're using a lot of movies and music uh, to people today. Just three minutes' worth. Uh, what about the occult? Why the great gravitation of so many people, especially kind of sophisticated people, believe it or not? A lot of sophisticated people, cosmopolites of another generation, attracted to diabolism. Why? And then what is the attraction, obviously, to the man on the ground before near death of, uh, of, uh, of being in the papers or on the Internet or being a published author or a famous person or a politician? What about power? Why is it so um, impenetrable to, to, to its being let go? Why do people who have it want to keep it? Uh, and, and why does that function as a kind of habitual thing that cannot be let go freely? Um, two terms becomes three terms, you know, for a U.S. president, but it happens throughout the history of the world. What about power? What about passive-aggressive power in marriages that people won't let go and create hells for their wives or husbands or their children, their parents, whatever, but especially their children and wives and husbands? What about the habitual character? Here we go. 
That's probably my favorite moment on PC's podcast when the phone rings. Um, but anyway, uh, it probably just rang at uh, your house. Now, uh, back to this question. So the uh, dying person or the near-death person, to put it in extremis, what are these uh, habitual obsessional desires for different uh, qualities or things or experiences. What do they have to say to a person in extremis? So I've done this PZ's Panopticon and off the wall, both because it is off the wall, as you'll see in its approach, which I hope is a, a real culmination of a style I've been kind of working towards for many years. It's very much the style of grace and practice, but a, a little more free um, from my point of view. Uh, what is, uh, and what have I learned? Uh, what can we see? It's not a world guide to Blackwell's guide to world religion. There are many of those books, and there are many wonderful books. Houston Smith, for heaven's sake. Uh, but um, let's uh, see it from the dying person's view. And uh, that's what this book will be. Now, I want to uh, use that, therefore, as an actual attempt in the podcast to talk about something quite different. And in a way, uh, talk about the reasons I have for not talking about certain things in the podcast, um, which is illuminating to me, and I hope will be of interest and humor to you, because there are some issues that are uh, of, of uh, I would say, a very major significance in this world today uh, that are, from the standpoint of a dying person, of secondary or uh, evanescent, passing, ephemeral significance. But for you and me, they may be of very great significance in the here and now. But I'm at the point now when I'm so, at least in terms of this book, so advanced or so, so at such a place in my thinking that even things that I thought were extremely important long ago have paled in significance. And I want to talk about two of them that sort of say, sort of say what, what I might have said had I talked about two of them, and then conclude with a, a, a note on why I don't. And then uh, we'll conclude with uh, Herb Alpert's really um, memorable, and I almost want to say seductive, but that's not quite the word. I would say just delightful and beautiful and lyric and relaxed and mellow and uh, still uh, perfect arrangement of girl talk. Now, um, the first one is uh, the question of gender differences. Now, this is something that we don't talk about today, and we can't talk about it. We simply can't talk about it. It's something that cannot be talked about uh, by men for certain, and even nobody can talk about it because it is so laden with a, sort of a political or power um, history to it or uh, a projection on it or a belief that uh, talks about gender differences are basically a put down to one half of the human race. And I understand that. And that's one of the reasons I never talk about it. But let's imagine that you could talk about it. What could I have said that I never say? And why is it really no longer important to me? Because that's what I really want to say in this podcast, which is entitled Girl Talk, number 151. <laughs> Now, I began to really uh, understand the, uh, the, the, the differences as I would talk about them uh, between men and women. I began to be aware, you might say, of something like a kind of generalized uh, approach to sensation and experience and impressions that differed in relationship to some of my early um, relations with girls and uh, girlfriends. And uh, the first sort of mighty or mightily impressive relationship I had going way back um, would have 
been almost summed up in the song Next Plane to London because I was once driving from Washington, D.C. to uh, visit my uh, girlfriend in a house that her family had rented at Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. I was driving in my first car, a 1962 uh, aquamarine Volkswagen Bug, and uh, was driving uh, uh, towards the end of my um, senior year in school, and uh, full of hope and desire and all the things that I should have been or would have been. And while it was during a sort of a rather gentle rainstorm on the last leg of the journey before you get to Rehoboth Beach, and uh, had just crossed into Delaware, and it was early on a Friday morning, um, fairly early the summer of 1968. I would say very early summer of 1968, and um, I skidded. I was listening to the song, Next Plane to London. The next plane to London will be leaving at the departure gate in five. Give me the next train to London, leaving on runway number five. And here was this song, and I was driving too fast, and it was very heavy traffic, as it turned out, oddly. And I skidded, and then the car turned around twice, 360 degrees. I mean, it was a major potential fatality. And by some divine act of mercy, the car... um, righted itself, did not overturn, and landed, but going the opposite direction on the left shoulder. In other words, on on the left shoulder, uh, going uh, at a 180-degree angle to the rest of the traffic as if I were going back to Washington. But it did land, and uh, it stopped, and it didn't even go into the ditch. And um, today it would be a concrete rail, you know, thanks to the concrete lobby. But then, thank God, it was a ditch. And it didn't even go into the ditch. And I was able to fully right the car, Take a deep breath, not even think about it, certainly not give thanks, and say, whoa, that was lucky. Turned around and continued. And all I remember as I was uh, was there in the immediate aftermath with the turned around car, having been saved from a fatal accident, because there were all sorts of cars going all around, and it was just a two-lane highway. At that point, it's probably 27 lanes going east-west today, but be that as it may, um, the next plane to London. So that is indelibly in my mind, and you've got the same. Look, you've got the same. You've got a song that specifically touches a particular moment that would be your equivalent of that, some desperate gambit, some risk you took as a kid, something you never even thought about, all for love, and you never even thought about the potential risks, and here you are almost dead listening to a song. And uh, what I began to see then was that um, I soon learned uh, that uh, despite all the things that people may be taught today, and despite some very important and good things that are um, now qualified from days past and that are contributions that needed to be made, no question about that, nevertheless, there is an extreme reluctance to talk about what I began to see very soon after actually getting involved in a real face-to-face with a person of the opposite sex, that um, that she was seeing the things that I was seeing, but from a very different point of view. And it wasn't just boiled down to the kind of person she was or the kind of person I am or was. It had to do with, with a lot of things that related to how she, as a woman uh, or a young woman, but a very mature one in her way, uh, and her mother and her sisters were seeing things, sister, uh, were seeing things uh, that I saw completely differently. And years later, I encountered an extremely um, perceptive um, 
quintessential diagnosis of the same issues in the novels of James Gould Cousins, who puts in the mouth of his heroine, uh, Cora, uh, the wife of the managing director or the, uh, the um, inspector general of the airbase uh, in um, Guard of Honor by Cousins. Cora, who's a remarkable and wonderful and admirable woman, he puts some wisdom about women in his uh, lead woman character that so completely summarized the uh, what I was learning about the um, almost uh, unbreakable bond between the woman's feelings and the and the what and, and what she actually thinks or who she is and the way she feels about a thing are almost uh, insolubly indissolvable indissolubly one and he has some descriptions there as he does uh, in the mouth of Hendy Arthur Winter Jr's wife second wife uh, who's also a very uh, strong character and a remarkable woman not quite as remarkable as Cora in Guard of Honor but that's in Love by Love Possessed and I began to see that you know this you, these are things these some basic principles of understanding the way a great great many women sort of process things which and Steinbeck says this you remember in the very last chapter that wonderful last chapter when Ma Joad philosophizes about men and women at the end of Grapes of Wrath and these are in fact deep truths um, they may not be the whole truth and they may not they may not, they may not need to be truths that should be brought into the professional sphere or the world of glass ceilings and pay I fully recognize, or elections for that matter, but whether we um, turn our backs on them or put a great curtain over them um, out of a fear of being thought not au courant, that may be an error simply because it's not true. So the thing will write itself anyway because the truth always comes out. The truth which is indelible and inherent and intrinsic and inborn will come out whether um, ideologues wish to see it there or not. So um, I would say that what I learned uh, from first a relationship that was typified by this disaster on the road to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and then uh, increasingly became apparent in, and I'm, I'm married to the best of them in my opinion, I'm married to the Cora of all Coras, have been for 40 years, the Cora of all Coras, and um, yet uh, there are differences that continue to be extraordinarily hardwired in me and in the relationship that I'm in that strike me as being relevant and important. But I can't talk about them, and I'm not going to. And I would only talk about them if I were to talk about them. But I, I, everything I've just said, I don't believe. That is to say, I'm not going to talk about it anymore because I didn't even talk about it. You didn't hear it. And anyway, I was talking really more as what I might have said or could have said or might have wished to say but never actually went on record as saying because to the poor guy who's on the ceiling, what I in my book called the floater guy, the floater who's floating above himself, watching as his uh, lungs are struggling for breath and it's two o'clock in the morning and he lives alone in an apartment in New York City, or whether his the doctors and the nurses in the ICU are trying to revive him, or whether he's uh, at a scene of a crash, or whether he's just had a stroke and he's uh, the TIA hasn't quite, uh, is just about to go into a full-blown stroke, but maybe they'll get something in his system which will break down the blockage quickly, um, you know, uh, or it's the heart medicine he takes before he has uh, another arrest. This is all, what uh, does he need to hear? Well, I'll tell you what, he doesn't need to hear about gender differences because it means nothing to him or her. What he needs to know is, uh, is, is there any meaning at all to anything down there? And B, where am I going? And uh, do I have any support? Am I alone? Am I alone? Do I have any support? Is there anybody with me for crying out loud? And secondly, 
it, it, am I just going to disappear and desubstantiate, or is there something going? Is there something? Uh, is there something to which I am uh, being traveled <laughs> towards? Towards which I am going? Is there life after clinical death? And also, uh, you know, what what was all that all about? What was the last fifty five years about, or the last sixty two years about? Um, the situation on the road to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, that ended disastrously, ultimately, or in a certain sense did, although it was in the hands of the contraption, the all-powerful, all-seeing, graceful, providential God in whom I believe. Now, the second issue that has come up in the um, the kind of political um, internecine conflict in which I myself became part uh, in the early part of the century uh, in which certain ideological issues seemed to become all important, really sort of people used to say, you know, is this a ditch worth dying in? Or I think it was, is this a hill worth dying on? <clears throat> but that was, a, oh, what a terrible expression. Is this, a, a, is there such a thing as a hill? Is anything worth dying on? And what does it mean to die? I mean, can a Christian really say, a real, can, can, can an integrated, I don't know what the word is, can a Christian really say, a religious person, is this a hill worth dying? Dying on? I mean, Waterloo? Or what are we talking about here? The Verdun, you know, Gettysburg. Um, uh, it, so the the ideological uh, issues, uh, I would say, none of which were really um, to be separated from a deeper issue. And the deeper issue about which I talk in the in my new book, which, as I say, I hope will come out from Mockingbird in early 2014. God willing, it has been finished. The um, the question was, what really be- lay beneath all this, uh, this tremendous sense that certain ideological issues were of overriding importance and worth dying on some fabled hill, some putative hill? Well, the actual um, answer to that is that the issue was never ideology. I've come to believe, this is me speaking, that the issue is really power, that ideology, it's not really about ideology, it's about uh, power. This is why, for example, fathers who have power over sons, their sons often reject their fathers. I'm talking about the son-father issue here. They often reject their father's ideology because, um, simply because they, they, the only way they can have separate, um, um, differentiated power of being is by not being under the thumb of their father's power. So if their father's a left-wing activist like Haskell Wexler, the son Mark Wexler almost is become, has to, has to become, and he says this and his father says it in a wonderful documentary called, um, Tell Them Who You Are by Mark Wexler, the, the, the son almost has to become conservative rather than liberal simply to be the person he is, to have his own sense of personal power, and I mean, or power of being. Uh, this explains why it has really nothing to do with ideology, whether the father was a left-wing documentarian um, drawn to extreme left-wing causes throughout his adult life, or whether the son, whose father, in fact, was a capitalist, or whether uh, the son is now drawn to conservative U.S presidents. Uh, um, this really has more to do ultimately with power than with ideology. And I learned in the power uh, conflicts of the um, early um, 21st century, for example, in Christianity in America, in the denominations, that it really wasn't about the, the things that really got me going were not the ideology at all. I thought it may have been, but it wasn't. It wasn't theology even. It was power. Uh, it, uh, the, the, in this case, it would be those who had power in a denomination um, exercising it. And if you exercise power against those who don't have power, 
it becomes persecutory, or at least it feels that way to those who don't have power. So um, please don't take that as an ideological statement. Conservatives uh, can be terrible to liberals if they have all the power. That is, if the conservatives have the power, they can persecute the liberals. But similar, we know this everywhere. But similarly, um, liberals can persecute conservatives. It's interesting that Philip Wiley, the man I've talked about, and by the way, this will be over in 30, I think this will be over in about six minutes. The, Philip Wiley uh, describes the author I admire so. His father was a very, very prominent, uh, as was the word in those days, um, Presbyterian minister in Montclair, New Jersey. And his father was a notorious liberal, a very strong liberal who, who was in the exact opposite side from the Machins and the, um, the you know, the, 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 the people. There's another very important person whose name I forget, but the conservative Presbyterians in the, 19, in the early 20th century who left en masse Princeton Theological Seminary and formed Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia were people who were actually persecuted by the uh, authoritarian side of the dominant liberals in the denomination. Isn't that fascinating? There are churches in Birmingham, Alabama, by the way, which were founded all over the country, if you knew the history. There were different Presbyterian churches that were founded because of this kind of schism that took place over certain issues of doctrine in which liberals uh, tended to have the power in the denomination, and uh, it, it, in the same way that another denomination today, you might see it. And so instead of um, conservatives um, persecuting liberals, liberals persecuted conservatives. And Wiley discusses that in, uh, when he talks about his dad in one of, uh, in, uh, in Finley Ran, I think it is, but it may, be some, it's, it may be in an autobiographical work. But Wiley describes his father, who was an impeccable liberal credentials, of the sort of Harry Emerson Fosdick school of thought, perhaps not quite as liberal as that. And uh, his father, with his impeccable liberal credentials, was part of the board at Trinity, at uh, <laughs> at uh, uh, Princeton Seminary, who just made life miserable for the minority conservatives, such that they finally left. And who wants that? I mean, was that good? It happened again in the 1970s in the same denomination. These things happen again and again and again and again and again and again. But the point is, it's not about liberalism as an ideology or conservatism, whatever form that may take in a given context. It's about having the power. And when you have the power, you want to keep it and you want to increase it. It seems to be part of the religion of power. That uh, 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 What is it? Jacqueline Suzanne? Once is not enough, you know, like a lot of things. Once is not enough. And so what I learned was that, that these culture wars were not, in fact, ultimately about um, ideology. They were more about things like rejection and feeling, uh, uh, what is it, Dis, discondemned, I mean, uh, uh, dissed, feeling dis, uh, disregarded, feeling uh, uh, regarded as bad by an ascendant group who had a great deal of strength. And how can you deal with that? How can you, how can you deal when you're really rejected by, the, uh, by, by a, a one group who have the apparent authority? Um, and how, how are you going to feel about that? Uh, it's not really about ideology. It has to do more with anger and reaction and uh, fathers and um, uh, power. It's not really about ideology. So in my book, I talk about the religion of power as being the least susceptible to attrition of all the what I call the religions that are not called religions. Because power is something that people, when they have it, almost never can give up willingly. It is very reluctantly given up. It is given up because it's forced from your hand. But if you think that people give up power willingly or without an internal struggle, that would be a very rare noble person indeed. It has happened in the history of the world, but it would be rare. We obviously associate Christ with someone who, though he was in the form of God, thought it you know, thought it not rob, um, emptied himself, 
so that he might become a servant to all. So you have in the Christian uh, religion not an ideological issue. You have a power issue by which power, the power of God, it divests itself voluntarily into, uh, into no power, into being at the mercy of other powers, and particularly the Romans. And so you have the remarkable story of the Passion of Christ. And Good Friday. So I leave that with you. That is the point that it is about power. But here's the 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 the, the P.S. I'm not even interested in power anymore. For the man on the roof, the man on the ceiling, the man who is dying, the man who is soon to insubstantiate and go somewhere, or at least where does he go? Let's put it that way. The form disappears. But where was the person who was Paul Zoll? What about him? after death. Well, I talk about that in the book, and I believe something that I want to say. I believe it more than ever, although I'm saying it in a way that is a little new for me, and I hope it'll be interesting to you. And I say something very old, but in a, in a for me, a fresh and meaningful and really um, now uh, personally, um, there's adhesion there to something now that I feel is very real, as far as I can tell. So the, um, it's, uh, even to the man on the ceiling, the woman on the ceiling, the person who's dying, power is gone. That, 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 he, 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 he or she has no power. They just want to sort of be able to say goodbye to all that with peace, peace of mind, serenity, guiltlessness, mercy. And they want to have something about, you know, who am I now? And who will I be? What will I become? Whom, whom, who shall I become? Uh, it, it's not about power. So this, uh, my dear reader, I listener, I am really no longer interested from the standpoint of the man on the ceiling with gender differences, whether they may be spoken of or not. It doesn't matter because they are, um, Christ said, uh, in heaven, uh, there is no marrying nor giving in marriage. There is none. That does not longer. The gametic, the side related to um, male-female issues is uh, disparu. And uh, same with power, because I have no power. Whatever I have at all, I don't even know what I have as I'm getting ready to die. So that's the perspective of the book. And I leave you now with, um, having talked about uh, the Rose Gardens version of uh, Next Plane to London, I leave you now with something else that I'm leaving behind because it will matter, this song will matter not at all to me when I'm on the top floor uh, looking down on the ceiling, the cork ceiling. I'm trying to say, SOS, SOS, emergency. I'm looking down and uh, even the issue of power... um, and uh, gender means nothing. But it was good while it lasted. Here's Herb Alpert. (laughs) 